This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Mayor Matheson, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. I really appreciate it. Okay. I, I love what you guys are doing, and I hope that people in Stratford don't mind playing the role of, well, let's see how this works. Well, they want a solution, so we've got to get, we've got to try one or two. That's for sure. So let's look at on-demand Sunday transit. Why do you feel this is a solution for something that has been going on? So, like many communities, we're really challenged phys- fiscally right now, and people want to see an enhancement to the services we offer in Stratford. It happens to be not only give me public transit, but I'd like to have it for more hours, and I'd like it to be reliable. So we put 40-foot buses on the road, and they go up and down routes. And in some cases, maybe somebody doesn't get on most of the route. Maybe they only pick up two people. But those people ride around in a circuit for 25 minutes, get back down to the terminal, get on the next bus, and head out. And their commute time's long, and it's not great. And the hours that it's available are short. So we looked at an on-demand service. It's like dial a bus from the 70s or maybe even before that, where you can actually use an app or a phone, call in and say, I want to get picked up. And the bus knows exactly where it's going to go. It'll have specific spots it's going to pick up people, tell you to go there and be there at this time. We'll pick you up, and we'll get you to where you need to be. And the bus isn't going to go up and down streets that it doesn't need to anymore. It's going to just pick up the people that have called in, if you don't have a smartphone, or use the app on the smartphone, and book your bus ride and get it done. We can put less buses on the road, but extend the number of hours that they're on the road. All of it sounds very good. Now, what prompted you to think this might be something that would work out better than the current system? Well, a company out of Toronto called Pantamonium uh, had been working on this app, and they were looking for cities to try it. And the city of Belleville tried it uh, in weeknights. So last summer, in June, myself, the transit manager, the director of community service, a group of us went down to Belleville, and we spent a fun evening just riding buses in and around Belleville. (laughs) booking rides to go here, to go there. And we just saw this and went, you know what? This works. It works. Belleville saw a 300% increase in the ridership using this application. They had the same fiscal challenge. They paid the same amount of money out, but they had 300% more riders and satisfaction went through the roof. So you know what, Stratford? We don't have to invent every solution, but we should be smart enough to take the ones that work. So we're going to give it a try. If it works on Sundays, we'll look at maybe increasing it to Saturdays and then weeknights. And I think you're going to start to tailor the service to the people that use it, as opposed to one size fits all. This is the only time and only way we do it. We are talking with Stratford Mayor Dan Matheson about a test of on-demand Sunday service for buses using an app. It's been carried out in Belleville. 300% increase in ridership. That's um, looking in the, in the dictionary for significant. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's significant. <laughs> yeah, you know, when we saw that and we actually rode the system and we saw how easy it was to use, and, you know, we didn't all ride together. We dropped ourselves off in different parts of the city and would crisscross at the terminal and other places. And you'd get chatting with people that are living in Belleville and using it. They were remarking about how they had an improved thought of what the bus service provided for them. You know, their overall satisfaction was up. They believed the city was listening. You talked to the staff. The complaints were down. They didn't feel like they were, you know, getting beat up by transit riders for not a, a useful service. We thought, you know what, that, that's what we really want to do. You want to be reactive and be able to provide good 
customer service. Well, let's do what the customers want then. Makes sense, and it makes and it makes a lot of sense. And who would have thought an app and buses would go hand in hand? Now, Mayor Matheson, if I look, Belleville's population is about fifty thousand, maybe just over fifty thousand. I'm starting to think in bigger cities whether this might even be a consideration, or would this be better for smaller cities? Well, it, it what I think it could be is a hub and spoke model. So I think. The hub of any large city, whether it's the Dundas East-West run, the Richmond North-South or the Wellington North-South, any of those runs probably need to have structure around them. But if you're off into, say, certain areas of the city, well, then maybe that's where this could be used and maybe be a little bit more effective. And so it's it's not uh, a solution that only has one you know small segment of urban municipalities. It's maybe a solution that can be used in large urban centers but in specific areas, like how do I service the northwest part of the city that doesn't, you know, doesn't have a full-time run all the way through it? And those are the things we need to look at. The solutions that are available to municipalities today uh, need to be innovative, and they need to probably use technology where they can, and they need to be continually monitored and updated where possible. Um, rapid change in technology is now three years or less. And rapid change in municipal government providing provision of services is going to be the same way going forward. Stratford Mayor Dan Matheson joining us. So, Mayor Matheson, for anybody who's still trying to get their heads around this, because you have ridden buses in Belleville with this app presumably in your hand, take us through how it works again. So what I do is I'm standing at my house, and I say I have to be at the Loyalist Mall for 8 p.m., and it's now 6.30 so I tell them I'd like to be there by 7.45. It says, okay, what's your address you're at now? I tell them, they say, the closest stop we're picking up at is at this stop. Let's say it's a block and a half away. Here's where it is. And I say, okay, book the ride. It automatically goes into a system. It gives me a GPS tracker on that bus so I know whether it's on time or behind time. And I head to that corner. And it updates the route for the driver. And based on your time to be picked up and where you need to be dropped off, which is more important where you need to be dropped off and what time, it chooses a route for the bus, knowing that it's got to get back to the terminal, drop me off, and the other bus has to take me where I'm going. And it continually updates it. And the driver, instead of following a preconditioned route that they've done for the last year, it says, you know, comes up and says, turn right at Frontier Road coming up. Turn right, go down, you know, stop 18. Somebody's there, great, get on. They confirm. I say I'm um, passenger, whatever. It says, did you get passenger, whatever? I hit yes. Updates it. Says okay, and it just keeps doing that. And it, the system uses artificial intelligence to keep programming it. And the driver, the driver just listens to where he has to be. And we're talking about something that's the equivalent of Pong right now. We're we're not talking about something that is the equivalent of a soon-to-be PS5 game. This this is in its infancy. Yeah, this is in its infancy, and it's good. The company out of Toronto that set this up was a startup. And three years ago, they came up with this concept. They refined it. They've worked with Belleville Transit to really put it out. And we talked to them at the same time about a year and a half ago and thought, okay, you only really need one beta site. Uh, So we let them get set up in Belleville, and then we went down and tried it. And went, you know what, this really works. So then when we were applying for our federal infrastructure funding for public transit, we included uh, this system is part of it. The GPS tracking system is another part. 
um, allowing ourselves new fare boxes that allow us to tap and pay um, in different ways. When somebody gets on the bus, they no longer have to have tickets for a monthly bus pass or change. They can, you know, tap their debit card, tap their Apple phone, any any different way to do it, and really start to mirror what the people are looking for. Wow. Now, you at the same time have looked into autonomous opportunities. Would you say that they could run side by side, or, or would this be something that you would do instead of something like that if, if you had kind of the, the pick off the shelf? Well, so we're, we're, not at level, we're not at the level of autonomy yet that's going to work. So this is a transitional model until you get there. So it's using the bus service as an example. It's going to get better service. It should have a higher satisfaction rate, probably a better ridership level. And while they refine what the autonomous uh, buses are going to be able to do in the future, this will be a good stopgap. When autonomous buses come in, a system like Pandemonium um, melding together with them, I think could be a great solution. But whether that's, who knows, three years out, five years out, seven years out, we've got an opportunity today to vastly improve our systems and uh, ridership, and we're going to do it. Love it. Mayor Matheson, thank you again for being willing to say, hey, uh, you got something? We'll give that a shot and and then doing it. As far as a timeline goes in Stratford, uh, this is being tested on Sundays. Is there a timeline when we could head to Stratford and do what you did in Belleville and just kind of ride around? Uh, I'm ho- hoping by June of this year we'll be in a position to uh, have people riding on the buses and using this. Um, we, of course, had the grant announced yesterday. We've now got to uh, procure the equipment. Uh, get it installed, and then, of course, do the public education session. So depending on how quickly the uh, the money flows from the senior levels of government, that'll drive how quickly we can get it out. But our target is to do it within the next three to four months. Do you anticipate any cost to riders uh, that would be any more than what they're paying now? No, the ridership uh, model is you pay the same today that you pay for any other bus ride, whether it's through the weekday at night or on weekends, and uh, Sundays are going to be no different. There's not a premium because it's an on-demand service. It's a service that's provided, and I would say at a premium level. Great. Mayor Matheson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Have a great day. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's kind of look at where this comes from, because you've been following this in a number of different ways, but you look at at one particular case. Can you describe that case? Yeah, I mean, uh, the case I looked at, uh, I looked at a bunch of cases, but the one I focused on in the story today was uh, a fellow from Ottawa. Um, Some of your listeners may recall back in 2015, there were a group uh, of ISIS supporters in Ottawa that were arrested by the RCMP. They were uh, planning to travel to Syria to to join ISIS, and uh, they were stopped. One of them was was actually arrested at the airport in Montreal as he was on his way out of the country. Um, And they were part of a larger group in Ottawa. Um, And, you know, and and so they they were arrested. They were eventually um, convicted of terrorism offenses, and uh, you know, that was in 2016, and they were sentenced. Uh, and the issue that we're exploring today is uh, has to do with the length of their sentence and what they've done uh, during their time behind bars. Because um, when we looked at, uh, at one of these guys in particular, uh, he remains radicalized. And in fact, uh, when we look back at 
um, all of the terrorism offenders that were released in the past year, and there were five of them, uh, if you look at the parole records, they say that four of them were still radicalized. And uh, I guess this sort of became an issue uh, worth exploring for us after the incidents in the UK, where you may recall there were there been two recent attacks, one in February, uh, conducted by uh, radicalized uh, terrorism offenders who had very recently been let out of prison. In the case in February, the guy had only been out for one week, and he went out and, and attacked people and was shot dead by the police. So it raises a number of issues that we're kind of exploring today in terms of you know how we treat those that have been arrested and convicted of terrorism offenses. We're talking with Stuart Bell, National Online Investigative Journalist with Global News, and we're looking at radicalization of individuals who then go to prison and come out still radicalized. Would this be something that does appear on their parole record? Is that where it's coming from, where the parole uh, board or, or whatever it happens to be that they appear before says, are you radicalized? And they say, yep, and then they just continue on and end up getting paroled? Well, I don't think it's that easy. What, what <laughs> happens is... <laughs> Uh, I mean, every offender is entitled to be released after two-thirds of their sentence has, has expired. So as these uh, terrorism offenders have come up for what's called statutory release, the parole board has looked at them and tr- tried to decide whether it's really safe to send them back into society. And, uh, I mean, they can't. the parole board can't stop them from being released, but they can impose some conditions. And part of the issue is that the sentencing in Canada um, has been quite short relative to what we see in other jurisdictions. Uh, so we, the sentencing, the terrorism sentences that have been handed out since 2016 have been mostly seven years or less. But then when you do the court math and you give them time and a half credit for the time they served in custody before they were convicted, and then uh, parole and uh, statutory release, it becomes quite a bit shorter. So just to give one example, uh, your listeners may recall, uh, Rahab Dugmosh was a a woman in Toronto who tried to join ISIS, and then she uh, went into a Canadian tire store armed with a butcher knife and started attacking people. That was in 2017. She was convicted, and she was sentenced last uh, January 2019 to seven years. But when you do all the math, she is actually already eligible to uh, to be released on parole on day parole. Later this year, she'll be eligible for full full parole. So the question that that raises for us, I guess, is um, is that limited uh, amount of time enough for somebody like that who was very very extreme in her? ideological commitment uh, and to violence, is that long enough for somebody to become de-radicalized? It's a great question. Now, in terms of where this could go, is this something that legislators would have to examine and make changes to, or could this go in a different direction? Well, I think what's happening right now is we found that the parole boards are kind of struggling. Uh, They're left at the very, very end of the process where people have been sentenced, um, they're being let out, and they're still radicalized. And so the parole board is sort of scrambling to try and put restrictions in place for them so that they won't go out and, and harm people. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the issues that it does raise that we may want to look at have to do with the, the length of the sentences that are being handed out by the courts uh, and also the programming that's offered in prisons because at the moment we really have no uh, 
programming in Canadian prisons to deal with radicalization. They, it was a decision by corrections to just do this, uh, to, to treat violent terrorist offenders um, through existing programs. So, you know, they're, they're a bit different. So the question arises, do we need to do something to try and um, help these people get over their commitment to radical violence? Right. Well, thank you for shedding light on this. Thank you for your continued work on these stories, Stuart, and thanks for the time today. Thank you. Blair Campbell joins us. Blair is the president of the London St. Thomas Association of Realtors. We've heard that housing starts are up. Blair, let's do some basic stuff here. What qualifies as a housing start? Housing starts are a economic indicator uh, that really it's tracking the number of new housing units built in a uh, given time period. Uh, so that it's anything that's privately owned, so houses, condos, uh, apartment buildings, uh, and they qualify that with units more than five units uh, for an apartment building. Uh, so, uh, and really the importance uh, of it, it's an indicator when there's sustained periods of increases is a uh, indication that the economy is growing, and on the other hand, if there's a downturn uh, and a potential recession coming, and it's generally have to see multiple periods of time uh, to uh, really give that indication. And the data seems to have given us a headline of the fifth largest spike in <laughs> this area. So when you see that, how do you interpret it? Well, it's a good thing uh, from the realtor standpoint. The uh, main reason uh, from uh, uh, for us is inventory levels are extremely low. So, and that's part of what's uh, pushing prices up, as uh, because the uh, demand obviously outweighs the supply. So, uh, having an increase in housing units helps to soften that, uh, and uh, leads to some of the uh, record or near uh, record level sales that we've had because. Uh, a common complaint from uh, realtors is we've got to have something to sell. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you can't break records without having that inventory. So. What do you think it is about this market right now that's allowing for housing starts to spike like that? Uh, well, uh, it's demand, in the, in the, particularly in the London St. Thomas area, uh, is very significant. Uh, a large portion, and this is kind of anecdotally, uh, we have uh, buyers coming in from other markets. Uh, in the past, we've said largely an influx from the GTA. Uh, however, that influx isn't just the GTA uh, either because it's a kind of a wave effect uh, where prices are high enough in that particular market that people are moving out further and further and prices are going up uh, in areas such as Hamilton. So we see buyers in Hamilton are coming from Hamilton because uh, they can essentially cash out and uh, buy a similar home in London. Uh, and with the age demographics, people hitting retirement, it's at a natural uh, point in their time where a transition is possible, uh, and it's a good way to, to fund their retirement. 
That's just it. Blair Campbell joining us, president of the London St. Thomas Association of Realtors. What do you think that overall is doing? Are we looking at a positive in people cashing out in Toronto, in Hamilton, in other markets, and being able to sell their homes for maybe a lot more than they ever expected to, and then find a home that is less in a very nice place to live, a very nice place to retire to? Is this overall a good thing, or is this kind of a scary thing? I would say it's overall a good thing because it adds to our local economy. Uh, it uh, uh, really, we have a, a situation where uh, even though people are saying they're hitting retirement, oftentimes they're now moving to a part-time career, so it adds to uh, our labor force. Uh, it, it definitely adds a change, and London's very fortunate. Uh, we, we do have a lot of positives for us, uh, a lot less traffic than the, the GTA uh, a, a great healthcare system. Uh, so having more people in that system also brings the benefit of greater investment in it. Uh, so it really is uh, something that I think is positive for our future. Uh, there, of course, are growing pains, um, but uh, I think overall very positive. At the same time, we are seeing housing prices rise, and those may never go back to previous levels, right? It's like saying, well, the bubble will burst in Toronto and Vancouver sometime. It just hasn't yet. And we have to look at London specifically. For a 30-year period, we had very small increases in housing values. So it's a bit of sticker shock over the last three-year period where we've had rapid inclines in pricing. Uh, but uh, really, I think there's an effect that we were lagging behind uh, because we have had a very conservative market for a long time. Uh, we are still uh, the uh, fourth most affordable major market in the country. So uh, I think we're still very well positioned and uh, not going to uh, see a decline uh, in the foreseeable future. Blair, thanks so much for the insight. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.